turn with me in your Bibles to the blessed gospel of Matthew. We're going to read in verse chapter number 7, verse 1 down to verse number 6. And when you find your place, if you would stand as we honor God's holy word. And we've spent a year preaching the first six chapters, and maybe we'll go through another six this year, right? Get through Matthew in about four years. would be pretty quick, actually. Matthew 7, uh, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse number 6. We've been doing our verse-by-verse study through this wonderful gospel, and this is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first major address in preaching, and he lays out a long three-chapter sermon, and we are with joy returning to it today. Our Lord says in verse number 1, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. God, your word is our wisdom, it is our light, it has brought us salvation, it is sanctifying us. Lord, we we stand for your word because it is the word of the living God and we honor you today. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to the truth of your word Govern our hearts. As we enter into 2023, we want to place the pen of our life in your hand and let you author our life. May this year be governed by God. May you be the driver of our life. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our self-will, our independence, which pushes against you. And I pray that we would understand today our complete and utter dependence on God for everything. We need you for daily life, daily bread, daily wisdom. Guide us today. Give us ears to hear and give us humility to obey all that your word says. We rejoice in you, Christ. We love you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. Years ago, the most famous verse that was quoted was John 3.16. And I love John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that anybody glad it says, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a, what a tremendous verse. And I think sometimes we miss the magnitude of that by our, our hearing it through the years so often. But where John 3.16 used to be the most famous verse promoted throughout our country, it has been replaced by a verse that it seems every pagan, every atheist, and every God-hater even knows by heart. And it's Matthew 7.1. Has anybody had Matthew 7.1 quoted to you by someone who doesn't reverence God at all, right? We have heard that said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. You know, the Bible says, Judge not. And so today I want to bring our attention to what I believe is probably the most misunderstood verse among lost people and one of the most misunderstood verses among Christians. 
And I don't think that the lost world is saying, judge not, and, and, and elevating this verse because Christians or churches are being more critical today. I mean, just go back 30, 40 years ago. You think churches preached a hotter message then than they do now? You think churches have softened their message? You think Christians have been fearful and silenced into their fear of offending anyone? I think that that's, that would be the case today. So I don't think that it's that people are being more harsh in criticism of people. I just think it's that the world, the darker it's become, the more they hate the light. And, and, and just, just like all of us, we don't want accountability for the wrongs that we do, right? And the Bible says in John 3, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so today I want to turn our attention to this passage and learn what Jesus had to say about judging others. First of all, what did Jesus mean by the statement, judge not that ye be not judged? This word from Greek, krino, actually has at least seven different ways it could be interpreted. And the meaning of the word is defined by the context that it's in. When Jesus said this, you need to understand he was speaking this statement in a culture that was defined by real legalism. Sometimes we'll say, well, that's a legalistic church, but it's really not in the, in the true sense of it because very, very few number of churches believe that you can work yourself into salvation. But among the Jews, they believed that it was through your works and your obedience that you gained favor with God, that God accepts the righteous into heaven by their deeds. And so you had to fulfill these commandments. You had to obey the law and uphold that. And so what that pr produced is, it, whenever you have a legalistic system, it always produces a judgmental system. And if you've ever come out of a quote-unquote legalistic church, you came out of a judgmental church. Is that true? It always produces that because you begin to evaluate the behavior of people based upon how good they're doing, how bad they're doing. But if you go to a church that truly preaches the gospel, it lets all of us know that we are unworthy sinners. When you preach the true gospel, we all start at the very bottom. The interest into the kingdom is those who are poor in spirit, right? We're spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God. We confess ourselves as the greatest of sinners. We, we align with Paul and say, uh, oh, wretched man that I am. And when you're in that kind of a system, you have been given such rich mercy and grace that as the recipient of mercy, you are prone then to be merciful to others. Does that make sense? And so... Inside of this legalistic system, Jesus had to confront something that was, was extremely intense in that culture, which was criticizing judgment of one another. They were extremely harsh. I mean, can you read a chapter of the Gospels without Jesus being criticized? Can you read anything he does without somebody coming against him for it? I mean, he heals people, and it says, and they picked up stones to kill him. Some of the most ridiculous things that you'll read as you go through the Gospels, it's like, so he heals a guy on the Sabbath. You will pull your donkey out of the mud on the Sabbath, and that's okay to do, but he can't make a man walk on the Sabbath? Are you so blind in your self-righteousness? And, and, and they wouldn't sit down with Gentiles, people like us, and eat because we were unclean. 
racial tension was extremely high. They would not pass through Samaria. They would travel around it. There was so much judgment one with another. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, judge not lest ye be judged. This critical, criticizing spirit that was so prevalent among them. Now, now was Jesus teaching that we should never make judgment against anyone for anything? Sometimes I hear Christians say, you know, we're not supposed to judge anyone. And I'm like, you have no idea what the Bible says about that. Because your statement just reveals your, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but your lack of knowing the truth on this situation. Because if, if you don't understand the truth about this, you're going to have a lot of things in your life that are going to be off. The same person that says, you know, we're not supposed to judge anybody is the same person that will still discipline their children. How can you discipline your children if you don't believe you should ever judge anyone? Don't, aren't you judging their actions as being wrong? Their attitudes as being wrong? And all the kids in the room are like, I kind of like this sermon so far. <laughs> and so you have to judge your kids. And you know, when your spouse says something wrong, has a bad attitude, has a bad word, does something wrong, or you just say, well, I'm not supposed to judge, so I'm just going to let that go. I'm not going to confront anything. Is that what you do? If, if, if somebody works for you and they steal things from you or have dishonest means or, or, or wrong actions, or you just say, well, you know, I'm not supposed to judge anybody, so I'm just going to overlook all of that. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Does God forbid all judgment of wrongdoing? What exactly is Jesus saying? Well, first of all, not judging others does not mean we don't show discernment of what is right and wrong. In Matthew 7, verse 6, look what he says. Wouldn't it be something if Matthew 7, 6 became the uh, most famous verse in the country? Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. My boss years ago when I was working in business world, uh, in the business world, came to me and he says, what in the world does this verse mean? And I said, do you really want to know? He was not a believer, and so I got to sit down and share with him what the Bible says, and it was pretty offensive to him. And I'll explain it here in just a little bit. But, but Jesus is saying here, the only way you can discern who the hogs and dogs are is you got to make a judgment. In Matthew 7, verse 16, he says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. The only way that you know who a false prophet is, is you have to judge their teaching, whether it's right and wrong. Matthew 7, 16, he says, you shall know them by their fruits. He says it in verse 20, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. The only way you know if a person is truly saved, truly lost, if they're truly a, a, a right person with God, is to examine the fruit of their life. And Jesus says you can do that. Sometimes people say you can never know if somebody's truly saved or not. Yes, you can. Just look at the fruit of their life. Time and truth hold hands. You can only fake it for so long. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my real disciple indeed. Show me people who continue in the word of God. I'll show you people that are truly saved. Show me someone who rejects the word of God, the preaching of God's word. And I'll show you someone who is evidencing by that rejection a life that doesn't look to be redeemed. And so he is clearly giving permission to discern between what is right and wrong. Secondly, God calls pastors to preach not just edifying messages, that help encourage and build people up in the truth. But he also calls pastors to rebuke people and reprove them in the truth. The last book that Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. In chapter 4, he writes this about six months before he dies. He's writing to a younger pastor named Timothy. 
Timothy was kind of a timid fellow. And he had some people really causing him some uh, difficulty as a young pastor. And so Paul tells him, basically, you need to be strong and, 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 and not cower before these situations. You need to, you need to preach the word of God. And, and, and the last thing he tells him in 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word. How do I preach the word, Paul? He says, be instant in season and out of season. What's that mean? Well, sometimes the word of God is preached when it's in season. And I think it was probably in season in the 40s and 50s in, in America. But then it turned to be out of season from in the 60s and 70s, didn't it? Anybody lived through the 60s and 70s? The word of God got quickly out of season. Uh, we're preaching way out of season right now, but we're going to preach anyway. Amen. Because we preach in or out of season. I don't care what this culture says about it. So we preach in season, out of season. And this is how we do it. We reprove, we rebuke, we exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Let me explain what that means. The words reprove and rebuke speak of confronting people in their sin, literally turning them from the error of their action and belief and confronting them with their wrong with the very word of God. This is what's known as calling people to repentance. This is exactly what John the Baptist did. He would call people, repent of your deeds, and he would tell them exactly what they needed to change. Preachers are not called to pacify. They're not called to please people. They're called to please God. Titus 2.15 says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Paul goes on to say, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. This is the positive side of preaching. The negative side is reproving and rebuking. Now, you know if you've been reproved or rebuked when you, when you feel or you say something like this, man, my toes really got stepped on. Anybody ever said or thought that before? You know, that really, really convicted me. That really cut to my heart. That is the blessedness of being reproved and rebuked. Think of how much... Think of when somebody says, you know, I don't, I don't want a church that causes me to be convicted. I don't want to be reproved or rebuked. What you're in, in effect saying is this. My life is perfect. I don't need anybody ever to tell me something that I'm doing wrong. I would rather continue, or if I'm in wrong, I would rather continue to live in my imperfection, be out of line with God. I'm, I'm, I'm okay to be out of line with God. I just don't want anybody to tell me about it. To, to, for somebody to say like this, I don't, I don't need any preaching, would be like a student that says, I don't need a teacher. It would be like a worker saying, I don't need a boss telling me what to do. It, it, would, be, it would be like somebody saying, I don't need to learn anything more. I don't need to be confronted with, because I have everything I need in my own life, in my own heart. I know enough. I don't need anybody else. Well, that's a very prideful place to be. I can tell you, I need preaching. I listen to preaching. I listen to probably a half dozen sermons at least every week in, 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 in the Word of God. I love hearing the preaching of the Word of God. It, uh, it encourages, it sharpens, it strengthens, it, it cuts. And so that's the, that's the negative side of, of, of preaching. The positive side is, is it says you exhort them with long-suffering and doctrine. Not only do you have sin preached against, but you also do so with patience. Long-suffering is the idea of patience. You, you, you don't, you don't uh, demand it, uh, it and, and then cut someone off without having any time of them uh, having time to change. It's, it's a long-suffering message. It's a patient message. It, it continues to exhort them. And so Peter was one who preached a very rebuking message to the Jewish crowd in Acts 2, in Acts 4. Stephen did in Acts 6. He preached such a hard message, they stoned him to death. 
And, and this happened also in Paul's ministry and in Christ's ministry. Thirdly, not only are pastors to preach God's word and encourage what's right, but, but also Christians are to confront people about sin. John 7, 24, Jesus said this, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. He tells us here to make right judgments. You know, God even wrote a book in the Old Testament and called it Judges because he set judges up over the people. Luke 17, 3 says, Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, make sure you don't say anything to him because you don't want to be judging. Is that what he says? No. He says, Take heed to yourself. If your brother trespass, if he sins against you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do what the pastor does. You're supposed to rebuke them. You're supposed to say, hey, that's not okay. If you see somebody doing something wrong, you don't want them to continue on what's wrong because you don't want that to destroy their life. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Anybody ever have somebody unruly in your life? You're like, yeah, I'm sitting next to them right now. You know, the church is to confront those who sin openly. Matthew 18 says, <clears throat> if somebody's in sin, those, another believer, that you're to go to them. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17 makes it crystal clear. Jesus says, if, if somebody offends you, you need to go to them. You need to confront them about that. The church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, had a man living in, 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 in wicked fornication, doing some very sinful things, and Paul confronts him in the letter. Read 1 Corinthians 5 if you've not read it. He deals with it very severely. Fourthly, Jesus commended the churches in the book of Revelation for making right judgment. He told the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, he says, you're, you're doing right by not tolerating those who do evil. He said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's what he told them in Revelation 2, 6. Now, let me give you five right ways to judge others. Five right ways to judge others. First of all, the right judgment seeks restoration instead of condemnation. Listen to what Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. What he's saying here is if you, he's telling this church at Galatia, if you see somebody who goes into sin, you that are spiritual, you that don't have beams hanging out of your eyes, you that are that are mature in the faith, you understand the word of God, go to them. And what is the purpose? Is it to destroy them, to condemn them? No, it's to restore them. It's a, it's, it's a desire to see them brought back into a right relationship with God. That is the motivation of judging other people when they get into wrong. Isn't that why we as parents judge our children? Right? I hope that. Are you awake this morning? Okay. I know you weren't this quiet last night around 1130. I heard, I heard a deep howl. You know, I went to bed at like 945. Buckeyes just scored. I said, I'm going to bed right now. I feel real good. Amen. Some of you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. You're doing even better. And so the right judgment is a, is, is a, is a judgment that seeks to restore so let me ask you, when you go and confront someone who does wrong, who has sinned, do you, do you have a condemning self-righteous spirit or do you have a spirit that seeks to restore them? <clears throat> you don't, we are not to go to someone to seek to push them down. We go to them to seek to pull them up. Secondly, the right judgment is motivated by love and not hate. 
Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus said it was love that motivated confronting sin. Those you love the most, you want the best for them. You know what the most destructive thing in a person's life is? It's not heroin. It's not methamphetamines. It's not alcohol. Do you understand that? Fentanyl is not as bad as sin. Do you hear me? I've had people say this. Years ago, I had somebody say, you know what? That's being judgmental when you confront someone over their sexual sin pastor. I say, oh, really? I said, let me ask you a question. You're, you're, you're in the world of addiction. I said, if you have, and you're in recovery. I said, let me ask you a question. If your friend was going to get high tonight, I said, what would you do? They said, I would do everything to stop him. I said, why would you do that? They said, because I know it, would, it could kill him. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think sin is less deadly than, than, than that drug? That drug may take their body, but sin can take their soul. You understand? There is nothing more deadly than sin. And it should be with the broken heart of a person with a tear in their eye that says, I could never see you go into drugs or go into alcohol. I would, it breaks my heart to think what could happen to you. And you would do everything you could to stop that addict from going into that. In the same way, should not God's people say with broken hearts, I, I cannot see you continue in sin because I, I know how damaging this could be to your life and your eternal soul. The Bible says, if you yield your bodies to sin, you shall die. But he that yields his body to Christ and to the Spirit of God shall live. What are you yielding to? What are you giving your life to? It's amazing to me how, how light people can take sin when Jesus Christ is being crucified on a cross. I mean, it wasn't, in our view, a grave sin that cast the world into to death. He ate, she ate a piece of fruit. How ridiculous that the world would all die because of that. How absolutely intolerant God must be. What kind of God do we serve? They, he, they, they break one command and everybody goes to hell? You kidding me? What kind of loving God is that? That's a holy God. That's a God who cannot look upon sin. Who is so holy that one sin would rip humanity out of his presence forever. That's how big of a deal that is. You think it's being judgmental and evil to go to someone to try to keep them from partaking in fruit of sin that would destroy their soul? Oh friend, you are living in obscurity. In, in blindness. In an obscure thought. You, you are so out of the truth. If you stepped into the ultimate reality of God's word, you would see the devastation of sin. Listen to me. If we even saw our own sin, I don't think we could make it through today. I think if God showed us how wicked our own sin was, we would mourn to the point of death today. Did you hear me? We don't even understand what I just said. Our own, God veils from even our own hearts the wretchedness of our own sin. The only time I think we're ever going to get a glimpse of it is at the great white throne judgment. We will, we will see the magnitude of it. We, we will be shocked into the reality. You know, hell is a reflection of the magnitude of the offense, isn't it? I mean, how offensive is sin? It's so offensive that people go to hell in flaming torment for eternal existence there. 
That's how offensive it is. That's how loving God is that he came to the world and died for us. And you know what he's called us to do? He's called us to go throughout the whole world preaching the gospel. And you know you can never preach the gospel without being judgmental. You realize that? I mean, Tom, we had one say this morning in our, in, our, in our foundations class. Dear lady called out the Christ. Do you know the only way they call out the Christ is you have to take them to the law, don't you? You show them the word of God. You know what? Have you ever, the Bible says thou shalt not lie. You ever told a lie? Yeah. What would that make you? A liar. So you'd be guilty of lying, right? Well, you, they could look at him and say, you're being so judgmental. No, that's actually being extremely loving. And as they walk to the scriptures and they see the reality of their sin, it's then that they cry out to the one who saves them, the only one that can save them. Amen. All of us have been there if you're saved today. Aren't you thankful for the person who loved you enough to bring you the gospel, but didn't you have to get lost before you got saved? Amen. Praise God for that friend. You know, the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Anybody have a friend who loved you enough to confront you when you did something wrong? Boy, I praise God. I have friends like that in my life. And I believe you would be a friend to me. I believe every person here. I think if I stood up and preached something false, you would love me enough to come and say, hey, pastor, you know, what you said was not accurate with the Bible. Thank you. If you thank you, because I believe everyone in here who understands the word of God and is a mature believer would do that. Thank you for that heart's desire. You know, a couple years ago, a man left Lighthouse because he did not believe in, in uh, what we, what we believe here at Lighthouse, that for you to be saved, you must repent of your sins. Why do we believe that? Because the Bible says, except a man repent, he'll perish. Jesus said that. The Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. We believe that repentance is a turning from sin, turning from unbelief, turning to faith in Christ. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you've turned to the perfect one and your faith is joined with repentance and salvation. And we also teach what's known as lordship salvation. We believe that when you get saved, he is Lord. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but there is no such thing as confessing Christ without him being your Lord. That's impossible. It's not whosoever calls on Jesus is saved. It's whosoever shall confess Christ as Lord is saved. That's salvation. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the kurios Yeshua, the Lord Jesus shall be saved. That's whosoever shall call upon the Lord. What's the thief on the cross say? Lord, remember me in your kingdom. This easy believism has polluted Christianity. I'll just ask God to forgive you. You'll go to heaven, really. That's why they continue. They have no idea of repentance. They have no idea of the Lordship of Christ. They have no idea of the true gospel. And you have a world polluted with, with a church that's half lost. I think there's whole entire churches today, even in our cities, that don't even know the gospel. They don't even know it. We've had people in our church who've come here who said, Pastor, I got saved. I, I was a teacher in a church. I ended up getting saved, and later the pastor of that church got saved. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's people pastoring churches. How is a church ever going to know the gospel when the pastor doesn't know it? But this individual left our church and, and had badmouthed our church to um, just a, a lot of people. I mean, and he would get really heated about it. Like, he would argue with people, and just they wouldn't really say anything back, but they, he would just really get fired up in the store and different places. And, uh, well, he, he, he did this to the wrong person a couple of weeks ago, and, and, uh, and that person looked at him and said, I rebuke you for what you're saying. That is not right to do, and, and did it in love and grace, but in, in enough sternness to let him know that's not okay. Well, that individual called me up, and he says, Pastor Josh, he said, I just want to, I need to talk to you. He says, because God has broke my heart over this. 
I've been bad-mouthed in Lighthouse, and I need to repent and ask your forgiveness. And he was so apologetic, and, and he said, can you tell all the people that I am so sorry? So if you have this individual, I don't need to name a name, who's maybe said something to you at Walmart or somewhere in society. You know, but that's, and I'm glad for his sake. I love this man. I, God knows my heart. I love this family. I'm so thankful that he's right with God now about this and he's not holding some bitter attitude about it. What a joy. He wouldn't let me off the phone. I was just, I was, I, I, I was just so thankful. So thankful. What a blessing. But you know what? It takes a, someone who loves them enough to say, what you're doing is wrong. You know, the Bible says if you confront a soul, you can save a soul from error and hide a multitude of sins. So the right judgment is to be done in love. It's not to be done in a, judge, in, in, in a condemning way, but a restoring way. Thirdly, the right judgment is forgiving instead of bitterly condemning and being retaliatory. You know, a lot of times people can get judgmental and they want to retaliate. Well, I'm going to get back at them. Well, that's a sinful way to approach it. That's a wrong way to judge. The right judgment is to, to be forgiving. Think about the woman caught in adultery. They brought this woman to Jesus. Remember? They brought this woman who was caught. They said, in the very act, you're like, where's the guy? This is a setup, right? They, they bring her to Jesus. And they said, in the law it says that she must die. And they have, they have no desire to show her forgiveness. No desire. Mercy and grace didn't exist in that culture. All they wanted, kill her, stone her. And Jesus says, you that are without sin, you that are without any beams in your own eyes, you start with yourself and then you cast a stone. And he goes down and starts writing in the ground. He gets back up, everybody's gone. The woman's still there. You know the woman's repentant of what she's done because she didn't run away when she had the chance. Jesus is there. He's the only one with no sin who could have stoned her. And he says, woman, where are thou thine accusers? Is no one going to condemn you? And she says, no man, Lord. No man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin because what you did was sin. Go and sin no more. Anybody glad Jesus rejoices in mercy and forgiveness? He didn't ignore her sin. He called it what it was. And he called her to go do it no more. Stop doing that the rest of your life. That's the right judgment. The right judgment is to be forgiving. The fourth way, the right kind of judgment, is judging a person's actions and not their motives. You know, you can see actions, but you cannot see motives. That's why he says in verse 16 and verse 20 of Matthew 7, he says, you'll know them by the fruits, you'll know them by the fruits. You don't know why they did what they did, but you can see what they did. Dwight Pentecost says, do not criticize, do not sit as a judge upon another man's motives, do not attempt to interpret the desires of his heart. Let me ask you, do you judge people's motives? As though you know their heart. Oh, I know what they did, but I know why they really did it. Really. That, that, that is a bigger commentary on the defilement inside of you than the defilement that you think is inside of them. Do you hear me? That's the truth. Number five, the right kind of judgment discerns what to share and what to keep silent about. Verse six in Matthew seven says this. 
Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. So in this passage, Pastor, what is holy? What are the pearls and who are the hogs and dogs? And what does this mean? Well, the holy and the pearls refer to the word of God. This is the, this is the treasure. This is the gospel. This is salvation through the word of God. This is, this is sanctification that comes through the word of God. The pearl is the word of God. And, and dogs and hogs were animals in that day that were really the most despised and repulsive creatures, creatures among the Jews. Pigs were a, a, an unclean animal. They were not allowed to eat them. It was a very, they, they're called swine in the Bible. My grandfather was a pig farmer. And um, I remember helping him move the pigs. We'd have those little shockers. I don't even know if you, there, there's a, probably a proper name for those. We only knew them as like the shockers. We'd zap each other sometimes with them, but, but they would get them to move along, and uh, sometimes we didn't have those, so we'd have a little stick. My grandpa would say, son, don't bruise the meat, boy, you know, and, and uh, we'd take care of those animals. Very, very unclean, you know, you, you, could give, you could give a pig something nice, and they would just destroy it. They would eat it, eat everything. Dogs, dogs in that day, uh, really in the Bible, uh, there, there seems to be nothing that is, that, that's lower than a dog. Now, some of you are probably upset right now why it doesn't say like cats instead of dogs. I understand, but let's go back to. Okay, I've already offended probably the whole crowd. So I like what William Barclay said. He said, with us, dogs are well-beloved animals, but it was not so in the East in the time of Jesus. Dogs were in these days what were known as the Perea dogs. They were mangy scoundrel dogs they ran in packs they would they would they would eat refuse dead animals even dead people they would kill people at times they 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 were flea bitten they were these these were not pets these are not what you're thinking of about a dog in your house these are snarling snapping fighting animals that prowled around in eastern cities they had no home they had no owner the dogs and swine in the Bible represent people who treat God's truth with contempt. God calls people who treat his word with contempt dogs and pigs. Did you hear that? Because they judge God's word as being worthless. They don't place any value on the pearl of God's word. So according to Jesus, while we are not to judge others in a self-righteous way, we are to use discretion and not give that which is holy to those who would trample it under their feet. This does not mean we don't share the gospel because we share with the lost, right? But we do not force it upon them, nor do we argue with them and debate with them in an angry way and try to, try to press it upon them if they don't want it. You know in the Bible, if people didn't want the word of God, Jesus left them. Did you hear me? If Jesus preached the gospel to your city and the city didn't want it, he would leave them. He would just leave them. In Matthew 13, they said, Jesus, why are you speaking to the people in parables? Parables were designed for two reasons. One, to conceal. The other, to reveal. They were designed to reveal truth to the believer and to conceal it from the hard-hearted unbeliever. And he said this to them in Matthew 13. He says, because it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. 
For in them is fulfilled the words of Isaiah. This people's heart is waxed gross. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes have they closed. Lest at any time they should hear with their ears. See with their eyes and be converted. And I would heal them. Jesus is turning the light off for them. Because of their unbelief. That's what he's done to this nation. You know why we're running into LGBTQ confusion. You know why we're running into sexual perversion. You know why we're running into every godless thing you could think of in our nation. Because God has removed his truth from this nation. Our leaders are blind leaders of the blind. We should be broken hearted. The only light left here in this nation is the church and God's people who stand upon this word. That's why we cannot be silent. We must stand. And if you don't, if you don't take a position to stand, you're going to fall in this nation. You will, you will be crushed by the wave of perversion. You think tolerance is going to win someone over? <laughs> That's a joke. You think passivity is going to win them over? It's going to take somebody who loves people enough with tears in their eyes, yet boldness like the backbone of a Caleb and Joshua to stand on the word of God and say, I will stand here. I can do no other. We must be there. We must stand there. I don't care if we're the there. And, and praise God, there's thousands of faithful churches across this land that are preaching the word and we need to lift that up. But I can tell you in Acts chapter 13, 18, 28, Matthew 21, Jesus and Peter, Jesus and Paul both would leave the Jewish people and go preach to the Gentiles. Paul would over and over because he says, you have counted yourself to be unfit for the kingdom of God. We will turn to the Gentiles. He wouldn't cast his pearls before them anymore. So should Christians ever judge others? And the answer is yes. And the right judgment is to seek to restore people, not to condemn them. Be motivated by love, not hate. Forgive them instead of seeking to be retaliatory toward them. To judge people's actions, not their motives. And to discern when to share holy things and when to keep silent. Now let me, let me finish on the last part of this study this morning in this passage on six wrong ways to judge others. These are wrong ways to judge others. First of all, the wrong type of judgment is to have condemning judgment. To condemn people in judgment. Luke 6.37, which is a parallel of Matthew 7.1, says, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. The, the idea here is don't judge people in the sense that you're wanting to call down a final verdict upon them, that they are guilty and and, and it's the idea that I wish God would bring judgment on them now. God destroy them now. You're like the sons of Boanerges. You know, the, Jesus, they won't let us come through Samaria. Uh, send down fire on them now like they did in the days of, of, of Elijah in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you have no idea what spirit you are of. That's the wrong kind of judgment, isn't it? Jesus rebuked that. Listen to the warning of Matthew 7. 1. He says, judge not that ye be not judged. And then he says this. For with what judgment you judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. The principle is simply this. You will have reflected in your life by God and others the same kind of temperament and judgment given to you as you've given to them. Let me ask you a question. Do you want God to judge you in the same way you've judged others? Do you want God to treat your sins like you've treated the sins of others? Do you know that's really the essence of the the prayer there in when the model prayer in Matthew 6 when Jesus says this, and forgive us our sins even as we forgive those who sin against us. That, 
That stops me in my tracks when I pray that. Because you're in essence saying this, God, I want you to treat my sins exactly how I'm treating the sins of others. I want you to deal with me in concerning my sin in the same way I deal with others concerning their sin. And you know what? I don't want God to ignore my sin. If, if I have a friend, say, 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 if, say if my friend Tom did something wrong, or if say I did something wrong, I would want Tom to come to me because I would not want to continue in ignorant sin. If I was out of line with God, doing something wrong, and what a loving thing, I would want him to come to me. In the same way, I would come to him because we love each other. We desire each other to grow in Christ. In the same way that, that we would not want that and we would confront each other, so I would pray, God, let, let your judgment come to me that way. Deal with me like you dealt with David. If I'm in sin, let your hand press upon me day and night. Let me not rest without coming back to you. Draw my heart to you. I don't want to live in ignorance. I don't want to be like the mule that has no owner that's like a foolish animal wandering into sin. Draw me to yourself. Convict me. Chasten me. That's, that, that's, that's the judgment we want God to bring on us because that's the kind of judgment we would give to someone we loved. We would not let up on them. Hey, it's burdening me where you're at. I, I don't want to see you going down this road. And, 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 and so that's what he's saying here. With the same judgment you judge others shall be brought to you. And, and so that's the kind of heart that we should have. Now a wrong response to this is somebody saying, well, if I'm going to, if the standard of judgment against me is going to be how I'm judging others, I'm just not going to have a standard. I just won't judge anybody. I'll just let everything go. I'll never confront sin. Well, that's one of the most unloving things you could ever do. And God will still judge you for that unloving, sinful response. Because that is showing that you don't care about people enough to confront them in what will destroy them. You won't evangelize because you don't care enough about the effect of sin on their eternal soul. That's why some of us never shared our faith last year. Some, perhaps even in this room, never told anybody about Christ. How? How can that happen? That is an unloving thing to do. Because it's saying, I love my comfort more than I love their salvation. I love being comfortable more than them needing the gospel. So I would rather choose to stay quiet and not confront them. I don't want to be judgmental. Well, I can tell you that's an extremely unloving thing to do. And it needs to be repented of this morning. That's the rebuking part of preaching. Did you feel it? We need that, don't we? Do we need that? Well, we're going to get it whether we want it or not, so might as well enjoy it. But Proverbs 27, 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so, secondly, the wrong judgment is also hypocritical judgment. Look at verse 3 through 5. You know, Jesus never told jokes. He never specifically said anything that was funny, but this is funny. It's kind of comedic. He says in verse 3, and why beholdest thou the moat? The word moat there speaks about like a little piece of sawdust like getting in your eye. Anybody think a piece of sawdust would bother you if it got in your eye? Yes. Anything in your eye hurts, right? That's why any offense should hurt. And he says, but you have this little, you know, you, 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 you see somebody and there's a little tiny salt piece of sawdust in their eye. But consider us not the beam. Now, now the beam there is like the rafter of a house. This is like a massive wooden plank hanging out of your eyeball. He says, you see that little speck, but you don't even see there's a rafter in your eye. How will thou say to thy brother, let me pull out that little speck, that moat out of your eye, and behold, there's a beam hanging out of your own eye. This is, this is, this is 
comical, isn't it? Verse 5. He says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. You know, everybody who heard this would have giggled and said, you know, that's a good point. He's right. Because people don't realize that when they're pointing one finger out, there's three coming back, right? Jesus is teaching before we can judge the faults of others that we need to deal with our own sins. And he assumes that men naturally find fault in others over themselves. That's why he says this. It is the assumed position. We miss our own sins and we, 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 have, we have planks hanging out of our eye when other people, all we can see is their sawdust. Let me ask you this. Whose sins are you harder on, your own or others? Do you see your spouse's sins quicker or your own sins? Think about that for a month. Are you harder on your parents' sins or your own sins, kids? Parents, are you harder on your kids' sins or your own? On your neighbor's or on your own, your bosses and co-workers, or your own? Whose sins are you more grieved over? Learn to be grieved over your own sins more than you are grieved over anyone else's. And when you're, when you're most grieved over your own sins, you'll be the greatest judge of others, because you'll do it right in love and humility and brokenness. I believe that God leaves pressing trials and struggles in our lives. Listen to me very closely. Some of you older Christians will understand this more. I think there's some struggles that you face even in your later years of being a Christian. And you say, I thought I would have been over that by now. I thought I would have been over. I think he leaves them there just to keep us humble. Just to let us know, you will never arrive this side of heaven. You need grace every day. Now go give to others what you need from me every day. Not only do you need bread and water, but you need grace because your heart is sinful. And God... God allows our weaknesses and our impotence and our own sinfulness to just... We cry out with Paul, don't we, O wretched man that I am? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? In my flesh dwells no good thing. And so Jesus says the problem is being a hypocrite. You have to... You have to first deal with your own. And then he says this. He doesn't say, once you get the beam out of your eye, let your brother go. He says, no, then you can help them with theirs. He doesn't say, ignore their sin. He says, now, once you're right with God, then you can help them get right with God. Let me give you a, just a quick outline of this. If you're upset with someone, first ask, what part did I play in this problem? Hear that? When you're, when you're out of line with your spouse, with someone in your family, coworker, neighbor, whoever, first ask, what part did I pray at play in this problem? What wrongs do I need to examine in my own life? This is exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Secondly, ask how would I see this different from their viewpoint? Well, if I look through their eyes, I can understand why they're upset with me. Well, I can understand why my wife got so upset by what I did. Or I can understand why my husband would be mad if I, you know, if, if he came to me that way, I'd have been the same way. Think about from their viewpoint. Any of you kids think you'd be hard to be a parent of? can't believe my parents, you, you think you want to raise you? <laughs> Anybody want to be a child of you, mom or dad? Be, think about that for a minute. Next, make sure you're right with God. Examine your heart. Is there some sin? Do I have some wrong in my heart? Next, pray for them. If your motive is pure out of love and not vengeance, then you will pray for them and seek their best. And once you've gotten right with God, once you're vertically right, then you can horizontally deal with those problems. 
Thirdly, the wrong judgment is being judgmental over Christian liberties. If I had an hour, I could go into depth on this. But let me just suffice it to say, if you read Romans 14, you'll see this. There is a difference between doctrine in the Bible and personal convictions. Doctrine is clearly spelled out in the Bible either by definition or by principle. Personal conviction are things that you in your life feel should or shouldn't be there, things you should or shouldn't do, and, and, and you have a burden about that yourself. You know, Some people say, well, I don't feel I should go to the, to the movie. Some people think they should. It's okay. Some people think in the Bible eating meat offered idols is okay. Others felt like they should never do that. Some Jews felt like I should observe these holy days. Others said, no, that's not necessary. God didn't command us to continue to do that. There's different personal convictions that people can have. What, you, what is wrong is when you make your personal conviction something you think other people should do. Well, I'm convicted about that, and I'm going to judge you if you don't hold my same personal convictions. Sometimes people do that, and I can name a dozen different ways that that happens, but I need to explain those so I don't have time to do that. Just make sure whatever you do, make sure you're not judging other people based on your person, because that's a self-righteous spirit. And that's not right to do. And so be careful of that. Romans 14 makes a very clear layout of that reality. Number five, uh, or number four, the wrong judgment is to judge the motives of others. This is something we can be guilty of, thinking we know what somebody's thinking. As I mentioned earlier, you know, people say, why, well, I, I know they did a good deed, but I know the only reason they did it was to get attention. I know that she brought a turkey this year to Thanksgiving because uh, she just wanted to make my ham look bad. You know, I know why they got me a gift this year. They never get me a gift and they're just doing it. Because, and, and, and that kind of a spirit. That, you, you don't know their motive. All you can judge is what they're doing. You know, that is an act of, of, of a, that's a loveless act. Let me explain this. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love believes all things. What that means is it, it, it assumes somebody's innocent unless they're proven guilty. It's the same way our, our court system was set up on things like this. You're innocent until proven guilty. It assumes the innocence. Sometimes as Christians and sometimes as people, what we can do is, is, is bring judgment on somebody without giving them the benefit of the doubt. So you're going to judge their motive. You don't know their heart. You don't know why they did that. But what they did was good. Why don't you praise God for the good deed they did? Time and truth hold hands. If they're corrupt on the inside, if they're, if they're being wrong on the inside, God will judge that and it will expose itself in time anyway. So just be thankful for the action. Thank you for bringing the turkey. Thank you for outdoing my ham this year. That didn't happen in my life. I'm just saying. But think, you should be thankful for good deeds that people do. Don't get... And then number, number five is quick and hasty judgment is wrong. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. People who jump to a conclusion right away. Oh, they said that. I can't believe they said that. And they start blowing a thing out of the water. Slow down and stop the horse, honey. Remember this. Let me ask you, is there typically more to the story than what is there at first sight? Isn't there usually more to the story? There's always three sides to the story. Your side, their side, and then the truth. is somewhere in between. And so just slow down. Learn, and one way you can do this is, is if somebody does something that, that really is, is, is bothersome or wrong, and you're like, whoa, you know, you learn about that, then go to them with questions and say, hey, I'm not coming with statements and condemning you. I just want to come and find out this has been said, this has been, and, and I want to find, is this the case? I, I don't think that this is, 
and even among spouses, you know, your, your spouse says something or did something, you're, you're like, it could be taken one of two ways. Love always gives them the better outcome. Love always assumes the best. It, it would come to them and say, you know, I know you said this, but I'm, I'm not sure that is this, this is not what you meant, was it? I was just wanting to clarify this. Give them the benefit of the doubt. When you do that, that is a loving person. A self-loving person is critical, judgmental, quick to judge, slow to hear, and it is a sinful response, and Jesus condemns that. And you will be treated by God the same way. Anybody want that? It should slow us down, shouldn't it? And, and, and the last thing is this. A, a wrong way of judgment is self-righteous judgment. To look down on people with pride and say, you know what, I'm better than that person. Based on your circumstance, your situation, your life, your history, whatever it is. We had a funeral here yesterday and a wedding. And um, dear 49-year-old lady went home to be with the Lord. And one of the dear ladies in our church who grew up in a very difficult way, very tough past, became a sister-in-law to this precious life. And she said, you know, she knew my past. She knew my history. She knew everything about me. And she loved me and welcomed me with open arms. You know, that's a loving thing to do. Not to hold somebody's past against them. You remember in the Bible, Simeon, the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, when the woman comes in and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her, with her hair. And, and Simon's like, if this was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman's touching him. All Simon could do was see that woman based on her past. He didn't see her as a life that would have been redeemed by God and was so thankful for the grace of God. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon never said anything out loud. He just thought in his heart, his self-righteous, judgmental spirit. And Jesus says, when I came into your house, you never gave me any water to wash my feet, but this woman washed her, my feet with the tears of her, her, her eyes and dried them with her hair. You never gave me any oil to anoint my head, my, my dry head that had been walking through this, this difficult climate, but this woman anointed me with precious ointment. You never gave me a kiss, but she's kissed my feet. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Because she loves much, because she's been forgiven much, but you love little. And he was rebuked. You need to make sure that you judge righteous judgment, not judge based on appearance. And so don't, don't be critical. Don't be self-righteous. Don't look down on others. Be a humble person. And as I conclude, did Jesus teach Christians should ever judge people? And the answer is what? So never say this. Christians should never judge. Well, then you're violating the Word of God with that statement. The right judgment seeks restoration instead of condemnation. There should always be a tear in your heart, if not in your eye. When you know a Christian's gotten into sin, it should grieve you. and Say, ah. Oh. And when it grieves you and burdens you because you want them to be right with God, you're so grieved. You must go to them and say, listen, friend, I need to talk with you because I just want to see you right with God. And you go to somebody in that way, if they reject your counsel, they spurn that, your heart would be grieved. You wouldn't want them condemned. You would pray over them, long for their restitution. Secondly, be motivated by love and not hate. Be ready to forgive, not condemn. Be motivated by that. Don't judge their actions. Only, don't judge their motives, I should say. Only, you can only judge actions. Discern when you should share something with someone and when you need to keep silent. And the blessing of confronting others, James 5.20 says, you can restore a brother and see souls saved. The wrong type of judgment is to judge with a condemning, a judgmental, a hypocritical judgment based on personal convictions instead of God's word. You judge their motives. You're quick and hasty. You won't listen to the whole story. You shut your ears to the truth. You're self-righteous. 
So as I close, are you critical? Are you critical of others? Learn to be someone who is more grieved over your own sin than the sins of others. And always remember the words, Lord's. For with what judgment you judge, it shall be reckoned back to you. So before you say that to your spouse, before you say that to your mom or your children, your dad or your family, before you say that to your boss and your coworker and your neighbor, you better slow down just a minute and think, do I want God to treat me like this? Do I, I'm about, do, do I want God to do that to me? I tell you, friends, I have been broken over this at times. I remember times where I'd be upset with my kids and right when I was about to just... I felt like God saying, do you want me to treat you with this kind of a spirit? And I had to slow myself down. Say, God, I need to make sure my heart's right because right now I'm being very critical, very condemning. You know, the, the, the worst statement a parent can say is something like this. I can't believe you would ever do that. And God says, really? You know how many times you did that? Are we so shocked? We need to slow down and, and, and be more grieved over sin. Let's be gracious. Stand for the truth unwavering on doctrine, loving people enough. And let this be a fruitful year for Lighthouse. Amen. Let's all stand this morning. Heads bowed, eyes closed, the altars open. If you need to come and spend a moment in prayer, I'd invite you to do that even now. I can tell you, friends, this is a message you will apply every single day of the rest of your life, whether you know it or not. You will live this out one way or the other. Sometimes we don't even realize we're violating it. You will be challenged with this. You will win at this. You will fail at this. You will. I pray that this would be so impressed in our souls that every time we respond to somebody that disheartens us, that upsets us, that frustrates us, we would stop and say, how, how I come to this person, I want to be the same way God would come to me about this if it were me. If you're not saved today, we have men and women in the front that would love to talk with you and show you from the Word of God how you can know when your life's over, you'll be in heaven. We can share with you from the Word of God how you can be saved. If you stood before God and He said, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say to the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, I would love to talk with you about that today. Today you can come and be saved. Father, we thank you for your Word today. It is our wisdom, our light. We stand in the dark and your Word comes to us like a bright and shining light. Help us to live out these truths. So far short do we fall. Help us to live out your word. Sanctify us through your truth. Your word is true. If anyone today doesn't know Christ, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.